Praise be Jesus Christ. Slava Isusu Christu. Please be seated. Today is the feast of Saint Anne, the mother of our Blessed Lady, and the grandmother of our Blessed Lord. Sometimes we forget that Jesus incarnate and he belonged to a family. If you read your Bible closely, your New Testament, he gave everybody in the family a job. So James, which who, who was his half-brother, the brother of the Lord, the son of Joseph, became bishop of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if that was a good job or a bad job. I don't know. Seems like to me, being a bishop in the early church and even today is very difficult. But the point is, uh, is to realize that everybody comes from a family. Our uh, current uh, social environment is to destroy the family because they want the government to control you. Even the communists got smart about that, that they could not do that. It was hard to do, especially among the Slavs, because they're very family-oriented for over a thousand years. You can't change that, huh? In a few years. When you think about that, I, my grandmother, my Slav grandmother, Anna, it's her feast day today. I remember in the liturgy. And uh, we during this month, uh, we would have a sort of feast in the house celebrating her patronal feast. And in the church, we would have special prayers and called Malebans, prayer services, and if you go up to uh, Canada, the northern border of New York, and you look around, it's pretty Catholic up there, and people have in their yards usually a statue of Our Lady with Anna. And of course, St. Anne de Beaupre is the great shrine in Canada to the Mother of God. And our people at this time of year would make pilgrimage up there to St. Anne. Uh, this month, uh, uh, coming up August, we had the Transfiguration, the sixth great feast day, celebrating the our Lord showing his glory, his divinity to his disciples. And uh, we have uh, <laughs> a lot of feast days lining up on Sundays. So uh, you'll be we're covering these feasts in our homilies on Sundays, along with the Sunday Gospel. So there'll be two Gospels all these coming days. I, I think a lot about uh, family. The monastery actually is a family of uh, men who come together to celebrate their faith in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Trinity, 
and to practice hospitality and to have a deeper life a prayer of life, especially monks are dedicated to the Psalter, same in the Psalms. And the Byzantine church, in the early church, there developed uh, the cathedral church, which was the parochial church. And they would have cathedral liturgy, which meant that on great feast days, they would have maybe three psalms. And the rubrics that we use, uh, matins and vespers and those occasions, are usually from the cathedral liturgy. And the mon what did the monks do? They, um, well, they were months outside in Egypt, you know, and, and uh, all around Palestine and uh, Syria. And we forget that. Uh, Syria is sort of being beat up these days. But when the Paul went over the wall, it was in Damascus, that's Syria. And these monks, what did they do? Well, they were ascetics. They prayed and fasted. And uh, they said, usually, 150 psalms in a day. And in between, they did different groups, did it different ways. One group might, one, and they didn't have books, you know. They had to be a monk. You had to memorize all 150 psalms before you were tonsured. And uh, so some places they would uh, go straight through the Psalter. Others, they would uh, punctuate the Psalter with um, a lesson and a prayer, a collect. In other places, they, it would be certain monks would have a, uh, certain psalms they would say with the psalm and a collect. And they would actually go to the Eucharist, usually on Sunday, uh, in a, a church somewhere, if they didn't have their own priest. And of course, just like today, priests were scarce, as there were the persecutions. But after Constantine became the emperor, and the Roman Empire started to decline after 400, it was, they uh, came out of England, and Constantine was up there. His dad had been the commander there. And he came down with his army to Rome. And of course, since he conquered Rome, he became the emperor. And then he moved his empire to the Bosporus, uh, to Byzance, which was just a little village. It went, but it grew into Byzantium gradually. And uh, by 311, he issued the Edict of, uh, excuse me, yeah, 311, which freed religion. And then by 312, he made the Catholic religion, religion of the empire. And at that point, the church just bloomed like a garden. Churches came up everywhere, and then liturgy developed in all these churches. And so eventually, the monastic practices uh, and the cathedral practices came together, especially in monastic communities. 
So anyway, to just give you a near, can you imagine that? The church spread like fire. So we think of the apostles spreading the church, but Constantine probably and his mother Helena were the greatest apostles in the fourth century. They built churches, they spread the church, they gave freedom to Catholics. And of course, Constantine had a problem. The pagans in the Roman Empire were not exactly irreligious people. Like our pagans, they don't believe, they say they don't believe in God and they're atheists, they're against God, atheistic, because we have a culture of science and uh, sort of a culture of uh, man-made laws, you know, so-called democracies, which are now failing miserably, as we see that. And so the Slovak bishops, they put out a coin for some anniversary of Cyril Methodius, I forget which one, and they made a coin and the European Union told them they could have the coin with the gentleman on it, but they couldn't put halos on it. Slovak bishops went to the European Union or wherever that is. I think it's in Switzerland or someplace, I'm not too sure. I should know that, I think it's in Belgium. But anyway, they told them they're gonna put the, uh, the uh, halos on their saints. Then Hungary, Poland, Austria, Slovakia, Ukraine, Russia, all declared they are Christian nations. Amazing. And they're going to practice their Christianity. Uh, it's strange it happens, but one family from our mission up to the north left the United States, and they moved to Russia. Couldn't believe that, but they did. And they wrote letters back how wonderful it was. I hardly can believe that. I've been there, but I had a jaundiced eye when I got there anyway. But in the early church, how did they live? How did families live? Well, first of all, communities were small, scattered, and they went to church every morning for the morning prayers and even every evening for the evening prayers especially in the Eastern churches. They did not have daily liturgy. They had that for Sunday and special occasions. It was interesting that uh, Cyril, one of the early fathers, the people probably take communion home for themselves during the week because he said, when you bring the communion home, make sure it's safe from mice and things like that, keep it safe. So they would probably seems like they were communicating themselves during the week because daily communion follows the Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. And I know in the monastery, we may not have liturgy every day because of various reasons. We always receive Holy Communion either at Matins or at a Moleben to St. Joseph. So some days are packed and we have to, uh, but we always have liturgy on Sundays and feast days, usually every day except uh, when things are too packed up on us. That early church 
they were prayers. And the fathers told them, if you can't say the prayers with the community, you should say them at home. They never gave them um, license to not say the prayers. Now, why was that? Because they knew that they were subject to concupiscence, to temptation. And they believed that if you were praying, you were not going to sin. Some truth to that. How many people in confession I've told, do you say your Jesus prayer? Uh, yeah. Anyway, if you say the Jesus prayer in time of temptation, you're not going to sin. It's impossible. But you throw, you throw this Holy Spirit away from you and you give in to temptation because you deserve it. What you deserve is to go to hell. But God is merciful, and he knows you like your pastor knows you, better than your pastor knows you. And he knows what you are, because he is among you. It says in Scripture, they choose the priest from amongst the people. Why? He would know what you are. Interesting. So we talk about, we don't know too much about St. Anne, just a little bit in Scripture, but we know a little bit about family life in those times, and we know of the tenacity of families to stick together uh, in the Bible. And you think about what families, well, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. So Abraham, when he went down to the land of Kadurs, he took his pagan wife with him, put her up on a, a mule or something, and uh, she took the family gods and put them under and sat on them. And uh, then the robbers came along and she told them uh, she couldn't stand up because uh, she says she was in her, her womanly time of the month. Well, she was lying. She was protecting the pregnant gods. It doesn't say in the Bible that he ever converted her, by the way, but you have to read between the lines, you know. So it was never easy, gentlemen, to be the head of the family. It was never that easy. Now, of course, our Lord is an entirely different situation. He, became, he came from the house of David. He came from the royal house. And he came from a line of very holy people who kept their faith. When I was uh, in the military, I had a couple rabbis that were friends of mine. Somehow they didn't live too long. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I got very close because I was persecuted because I was Byzantine. And the Romans always think they're the big dogs on the walk, you know. And my liturgy course was gorgeous. And even my Roman liturgy was gorgeous because I fixed it up with incense and psalms and things like that, real, real prayer. I didn't criticize them. I said nothing. But it gets around. So anyway, um, 
we became, since we were both persecuted, he was persecuted because his father died and he had to mourn for about 30 or 40 days. And of course, they wanted them to keep duty hours. We had to pray in the morning. So I said to them, well, just take your prayer book and go to the office and close the door. But you know, we were in air training command. And when you got to the office, there are maybe 50 or 60 people or standing outside your door to come to talk to the chaplain. So it was hard. But I always managed to <clears throat> go a half an hour early at least and pray before I went into the office. That was noticed. You know who really appreciated it? The people who I was uh, supervising. They said, why can't you be the boss? Said, because I'm not the boss. I'm not of that rank. I'm not ready for that. But anyway, I enjoyed this friendship with Rabbi Ingelstein. And uh, certain things we, we talked. He invited me to the house for the, the, his special ritual meals. There were certain things he didn't want me to do. All I learned, they were beautiful meals, and they had a lot of prayers, like the Hillel that Jesus said at the Last Supper, those psalms, things like that. And uh, <clears throat> they drink a lot of wine. <laughs> those meals, I'll tell you, was too much for me. But anyway, it was a wonderful experience. I think it was my study in comparative religion. I liked that, doing that. And we stayed We stayed friends for years. Then I was in New York. He came to see me, and we went to Lake Placid, which Lake Placid, New York, is a place where they ski. And his wife was skiing, and we were in the, uh, you know, the clubhouse there, having buttered rums and things like that. And if we were going to eat, I never ordered food that wasn't kosher because I didn't want to disrespect him. So I usually ordered tuna or something like that that is kosher. We learned a lot about each other. So finally, I was way out here, and he called me one day, and he said to me, I have no son to say Kaddish for me. He had a little girl, Stella. He said, no son to do Kaddish. And Kaddish, if you go to the Friday night service, they stand, and all the men that have lost their father that year stand, and they say Kaddish, they say a prayer for him. Every Jewish man wants a son, say the prayer for him. I wonder if we teach our children to pray for us. Now, finally, I all about Christmas, I used to send them a Hanukkah card and so his wife called me and told me he fell asleep in the Lord. He, flees, he's, he died young. He did get the boy. He asked me, I said, I can get you a boy, but said, if I get you a boy, you're going to have to raise him Catholic. He says, it won't work out. He says, no, I don't think it'll work out. So I got a call. It was a very sad call that he had died. Within a week, he died. He got sick, and he died. And when I was with him, or we were together serving the military, he said the morning prayers. He said the evening prayers. And I was saying the office in the other corner. 
Now, I only tell you this because prayer is the cement of a family. It's the cement of the church. When I was a youngster in our church, you would go to church on Sunday morning and the priest would celebrate matins. The matins, the cathedral mass, not, not uh, monastic matins, because monastic matins is very long compared to cathedral matins. And everywhere I went, I had a form of that when I was pastor. I always had matins before liturgy in the parish church. I started out celebrating the liturgy for the people that would come during the week. And then I would just say matins afterwards. That's sort of, that's sort of backwards. And then uh, people would come and they, they'd hear me praying and they would say to me, can we pray with you too? I said, yes, you can. And uh, Lorraine Proctor, she still belongs there. She's getting up there in years. I gave her a book. But she said to me, she wrote me a note. It's a wonderful note. I've kept it. She says, there was one book. Then there was another book. <laughs> there was another book. And she says, pretty soon we had a shopping bag full of books to say matins. So I sprung it on them. But that was like the early church. That's what the Christians did. I noticed after a while, like when the guys came back from World War II, we didn't have matins in church because the Romanish priest told them that it was only necessary to go to mass. But they sort of spoiled our practices. And of course, it's easier not to have matins. It's easier to rush into church, have liturgy. And the people even complain about this, the length of liturgy. They are sinners. Why should God have any time for you if you do not give him quality time? Big question. And what kind of Christian mother and father are you if you're not praying morning and evening with your children? Big question. But of course, money is your God. You have to work. The Hasidic Jewry in uh, Palestine or Israel are always in trouble with the government because they don't go to work in the morning. They stay home and pray. Then they go to work. And of course, Zionists founded that country and Americans. And it's more important to make money than to live with God. Somehow, if we pray and keep do our duty to God and fall in love with the beauty of the church, our beautiful Byzantine church, God will take care of us. You won't starve. And around here, we're not starving, the monks. Of course, we're fortunate, most of us, that we sell these dogs. And a lot of people do that. It's a good thing. People think more of their dogs than they do of their children, so it's a good thing. I don't know. Maybe it's not. I don't know. 
But anyway, the stress on this is family and prayer go together. The family of the church and the family in your home. A lot of families, I ask people about their prayers. Well, they pray individually, if they pray. They go to schools where they don't pray. They live in a society where it's an embarrassment to see somebody pray. So a bishop told this story. Uh, this grandmother and her grandson were out for dinner at a restaurant. And um, before they started to eat, they said, great. They blessed themselves and said, grace. And so this wise guy comes over and says to them, is that how you act down on the farm? And the grandmother said, yeah, everybody except the pigs. Are you a pig? And when we pray, recollect yourself, call yourself to attention, the whole family. Think of God who lives in your heart and speak to him with your prayer. And realize every morsel we put in our mouth is his gift. And don't waste food. Thousands of people just love to have the garbage you throw away from your house. We have too much food, and we don't appreciate the food we have. Sad. Family, Bishop, Sheen, wonderful preacher, very famous TV uh, personality. He said, the family that prays together stays together. Very important. And I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my father and my mother, they were out making money, you know. And uh, they prayed. I learned a lot. He said, I wanted you to be with them to learn what a good marriage and a good family is. She adored him. And no one could say a word about her to him. So I asked, my, my grandfather was getting ready to go out to vote. And I came in the house because I was out of school and I, you know, boys are always hungry. But my grandma always had a pot of soup on the stove. I love soups. I could live on soup as long as you put something in it. And I'd get a bowl of soup there before I went for my dinner. But anyway, uh, my grandfather had his Sunday suit on. In those days, people dressed for church. And he had his gold watch, his Sunday suit. It's weekday. And I said to my grandmother, where is he going? He's going to vote. So I said, uh, Baba, aren't you going to go to vote? Because in school they told us everybody should vote. And uh, she says, no, 
well, aren't you a citizen? She says, I am. She says, in the old, when Grandpa became a citizen, um, I became a citizen. In those days, if the husband was a citizen, so was the wife. But she says, I don't vote. I says, why don't you vote? It's for men. So I started to explain to her, you know, informing her what they told the school. She said, let me tell you something. He says, you know, down in New York, they had all those rich women marching around. The first thing they did was they did away with the alcohol. You couldn't drink. And she says, you know, the only medication we ever had was alcohol. We didn't have all these fancy drugs you have now. And she said, when the influenza hit in 1915, she says, the guy would come home from the shop working in the factory. He'd be sick. We'd put him in bed, get another woman to help us, make sure he didn't get too frisky, get him drunk, fill him up with hot soup, put the parina, the, what's a parina, the feather bed over him, and sweat it out of him. Those were the guys that lived. The Protestants were dying like fleas. Because they couldn't drink. It was a sin. I don't know who the hell told them it was a sin. I never figured that out. To abuse anything is a sin. Then she says the second thing that happened the women started marching around up and down New York City and everybody, and they got the right to vote. She said the third thing that happened is World War II came, and the women took off their skirts and dresses and put on slacks and went to, tied their hair up and went to work in the factory, and they made money. The dad was no longer the only breadwinner in the family and he says, now, looks like it takes two people working, and there's no worry about who's taking care of the kids, and they're going wild. She says, it's been the plan of the devil to destroy the family. It's difficult. A lot of families choose to stay home, take care of their children and the mother, and they have to sacrifice to do that. But it used to be, the days Horatio Elger, a man got a job and he supported his family and he got a living wage. The money today is sort of useless. It takes so much of it to do anything. Now, in the days of Jesus and Joachim and Anna, if one member of the family moved, the whole family went. I don't mean just mom and dad and the kids. I mean the aunts and uncles. So when Jesus went down to Egypt, so did his cousins, extended family. When he came up, they came up with him. When they went to the temple for the high holidays, the whole family was there. Their religion was a family matter, extended family matter. Nowadays, people marry 
they don't know who the hell they're marrying. They know, is that a good Catholic girl? Is that a good Catholic man? Is he practicing? What kind of children is he going to help me? So many times I would see in church a mother with her children, the husband's not there. Why isn't he there with them? What kind of a leader is he? Doesn't he fear God? Or even a husband that fought with his wife because he's taking, she's taking the children to the liturgy. Women had to quit the church over things like that because there was no peace at home. And there was never going to be any peace at home anyway, living with a godless man. That was not the case of those biblical families. And so we see, if you read closely the Bible, New Testament, see Joseph, he's a widower, and his sons and daughter are mentioned there. He becomes the foster father of Jesus Christ. He had to be very good because the family of the virgin selected him. That's why he carries the lily. They put staffs of men in the temple, see which would be the right choice. And the staff that Joseph put in the temple bloomed. They said, he's got to be the one. You gentlemen, you have to maintain your male mystique. Don't be a wimp, but be a leader by your prayer. A woman can stand the other proclivities of her husband if he's a man of prayer. And every woman should be a woman of prayer and be kneeling with her children in prayer. And dad should be proud of that. Today is the feast of St. Anne, my grandmother's feast day. They were people of prayer. They're now in St. Joseph's Cemetery, all of them together, still a family. There's about nine graves there. Cousins, family, they're all in that cemetery. My parents are not there because in our tradition, priestly families are buried in a special place. So they're in a mausoleum in Mount Macrina, and my mother's like a queen. She's enthroned just above the altar. My father is just down one step from her. And there's a place there for me if that's where the monastery wants to put me. I think they probably will. I don't know what they're going to do. I think in life and in death, in birth and sorrow, in a celebration of the feast of the church, we need a family. We have the great family of the church itself, but we need a family and we take care of each other. So when I start recruiting a young man I might think become a monk, I always remind him 
he has responsibility for the older monks to take care of them. They're, there. They're the treasures. They are the ones who know the secrets and can hand down the life of prayer. The family is the model of the church, not the bureaucracy. Bureaucracy kills everything. I think about the family all the time, especially now that I'm getting younger. And uh, I thank God that I have such good memories. And I try to hand them down to you, to motivate you, and to realize your responsibility for each other and for monks too. You must support monks. In our church, we are in a crisis. We don't have enough monks. Yes, we've got married priests now, and that's wonderful, but they have a family. And if they raise their children right, they're going to be taken care of, and the church will grow. Monks have only each other, and they're celibate. Some of them have been married. They rarely see their children. Sad. And their children maybe don't even understand my daddy or grandpa became a monk. It's a wonderful gift to the church to have people that pray almost 24 hours a day around the world for your well-being. And heaven likes it. I contemplate, I say this many times to you, a wonderful mystery. A man or woman mature in Christ. And they are mature in Christ because they had three things in their favor when they were growing up. Wonderful parents, wonderful grandparents, and wonderful priests. Name the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.